Well, this morning, we're coming to the end of a seven-year journey studying through the Gospel of Luke. We've been doing it each summer for the, the past six summers, and the final passage that we look at together now, uh, arriving at it after these seven years, is actually a very short one. But don't let its length fool you. Uh, This brief section of the ascent of Christ, it is similar in my mind to a regular-sized serving of classic frozen custard. Uh, If you get that, you know, it can feed a whole family, (laughs) just a regular size. So there's a lot loaded into this section. It really is loaded with significance. But sadly, many, many Christians have not thought deeply about it. To do a a quick assessment of yourself personally, ask yourself this question. Why is the ascension of Christ so significant? Why is the ascension of Christ so significant in God's plan of redemption? Would you be able to answer that question if someone asked you? That's the question that that we're going to cover this morning. And to answer it, we're going to work through two main points. We're going to look at the ascension and the implications. We're going to study the ascension of Christ and the implications of it. For our first main point, keep in mind that Acts, which was also written by Luke as a a follow-up to his gospel, in Acts we find out that Jesus taught his apostles over a period of 40 days before ascending into heaven. And I'm going to read the additional description of the ascension in Acts to round out that scene in your mind. After telling his apostles to wait in Jerusalem to be given the Holy Spirit, Jesus said this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Jesus had told his apostles before his death that he would depart and go to the Father, and now that time has finally come. After 40 incredible days of being with Jesus and learning the scriptures and the mission of the church from him after the resurrection, he was finally taken up into heaven right before their eyes. Now, I want you to, to notice one of the things that, that Acts points out, and it's when the, the angels show up and they emphasize that this same Jesus will return. The same Jesus will return. And that detail is important because it emphasizes that God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, he'll forever be united to human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't just put on a human suit. He didn't just pretend to be human temporarily while on earth and then ascend back into heaven and return to just a spiritual uh, existence within the Trinity. No, Jesus is eternally united with humanity through the incarnation. As one theologian put it, in the incarnation, the divine nature came down to earth, and in the ascension, the human nature, it rose up into heaven. Now, I want you to notice one other detail about the ascension that has just jumped out to me recently as I've been studying, and that is how Jesus blesses his disciples during it. Look again at verses 50 through 51. Then he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. 
And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven. And Jesus spent much of his time with his apostles teaching them, but that teaching and, and everything else that he did for them during his earthly ministry was done to bless them. And so it's fitting that as he left, his last words to his followers were not ones of instruction, but of sweet blessing. He didn't give them a final command, but he spoke a blessing over them. Don't miss the image that Luke is painting for us. The Lord Jesus Christ is rising up to heaven, and as he rises, he's raining down his blessings on his followers. He's rising up to heaven, and he's pouring out his blessing, blessings on his followers still on earth. And what a powerful glimpse this is of the life-changing reality that the heart of Jesus Christ is to endlessly bless you. The heart of, of Jesus Christ, his desire for you is to bless you now and for all of eternity. Don't forget that, that Jesus, he's not blessing perfectly loyal and, and brave men here as he departs. He's blessing the men who had deserted him and fled like cowards the night before he was crucified. Now these failed followers are the ones that Jesus is pouring his blessing down upon as he descends. And it's yet another biblical proof that no matter how you've sinned and failed in your life, God's desire is to bless you as well. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God's deepest desire for your life is your eternal blessing and good? That is his heart. And if you're a Christian, you'll enjoy the endless blessings of Christ in the new sinless universe that God creates when, he, when Christ returns. And the greatest of all of his blessings will be Christ himself and the perfect intimacy that you will enjoy with God through him. Now, before we move on from that happy thought, I need to clarify that not everyone will experience the endless blessings of Christ. All people do experience countless blessings from God each and every day of their lives here, from our heartbeat to every breath in our lungs, to the friendships and relationships we enjoy with others, to the beauty of the world around us, even the, the meals that we eat and the taste buds that God has, has designed we experience God's goodness and love constantly in the world. But what's the normal human response? Instead of gratefully worshiping God and obeying our creator, we're naturally ungrateful, proud, selfish, and rebellious. We take for granted God's kindness towards us. And while we selfishly want his blessings, we don't want him. We want the blessings from God, but we don't actually want him to be God. Because if you are in a relationship with God, you can't operate as your own God any longer. You actually have to submit to him. And the, the reason our sin is, is so ugly, one of the reasons, the, the picture in my mind is that of a gold digger. You all know what a, a gold digger is, thanks to Kanye West, right? So it's a man or a woman who gets with someone else, who marries someone else usually, and they do it because they want the other person's money. They do it because they want the other person's resources. They don't love that individual. They don't care about that person. They usually try and marry someone old, right? So they hopefully will die faster. <laughs> and you think, that is so messed up. That's so messed up to treat another human being that way. But how much more offensive is it when we do that towards God? When we do that towards our Creator? 
who's perfect in his love towards us, who's only done good towards us. This is why the Bible says that the default fate of human beings is not the eternal blessings of heaven, but the eternal judgment of hell. Hell is a real and endless place. And although we deserve God's wrath, although we deserve to go there, it's possible for us to receive eternal blessings instead. But the only reason for that is because Jesus Christ took the wrath of God in our place. Jesus Christ went to the cross and was punished for our sin the way that we deserve to be. Verse 50 says that Jesus raised his hands to bless his apostles as he ascended. That's what the Old Testament priests would do when they would bless the people and pronounce a blessing over them. Jesus raised his hands. And as he did, he would have exposed once again to his followers the nail wounds in his hand, the glorified wounds that point to the, places, the place that he was nailed to the cross. And this is why Jesus could offer us eternal blessing instead of an eternal curse. It's because he offered himself as a sacrifice in our place. He became our great high priest through his, through his sacrifice. For the rest of your life, when you think about the scene of the ascension, I want you to think about the endless blessings that Christ wants to pour out onto your life. The risen Christ, the ascended Christ, he wants to bless you forever. And the reason I want you to think about that is because the scene itself, the scene itself it gives us a glimpse into why Jesus ascended into heaven and what he's doing there now. That brings us to our second main point, the implications. What are the implications of the ascension? This is not a, a comprehensive list, but we're going to highlight just three significant aspects of Christ's ascension. And the first is that Christ is supremely exalted. Christ is supremely exalted. The, the way that Jesus ascended into heaven now, he had the power to, to do that himself, but it says he was taken up into heaven. So this was something God the Father did for Jesus. In many ways, it highlights how Jesus is the only person who's ever lived who can appear before God the Father on his own merit. He can appear before God based on how he has lived. And so the, the way that he is taken up into heaven, it highlights how high he is, how inexpressibly high he is above every other human being. Listen to what Peter preached on the day the Holy Spirit was poured out in Jerusalem. This is the first ever message preached in the church age. And Peter says this, God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That, that statement there is a quote from Psalm 110, a very important messianic psalm. And that psalm, it's referenced over a dozen times in the New Testament. It's very significant. And here, Peter's, Peter's saying, this is what's happened with the Lord Jesus. He was placed at the right hand of God through the resurrection and through the ascension. And he goes on and he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. The resurrection and the ascension, it proves that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he was the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. The phrase right hand of power, which used again many times in the New Testament, this is a reference to, to 
the authority of a ruler, the power of a ruler. And so what this is saying is that Jesus Christ, the God-man, Jesus Christ, a, a real human being, he has the exact same authority and power as God the Father. That's actually a shocking statement. It would have been especially shocking to the, the Jews who first heard this. God the, God the Son humbled himself in the incarnation, but God the Father highly exalted his Son by his resurrection and ascension, giving him, as Philippians 2 puts it, a name that is above every name. If you're a Christian, you've probably heard that phrase a lot, a name that is above every name. What name is it? What's the name that is above every name? Do you know? Well, in Philippians 2, it clearly says that name is Jesus. The name is Jesus, which is interesting. That was the new name that God the Son was given when he made himself a human being. So God the Father didn't call God the Son Jesus in eternity past. So why is that name, why is the human name Jesus, why is that the name that's above all other names? I think one of the reasons is that because of Jesus' humiliation, because of him taking on human flesh, we can know him so much more deeply now in his glorification. Do, do this thought experiment with me. If we had never sinned, would God be any less glorious? Of course not. God's perfect within himself. But if we had never sinned, we would not be in position, we would not be in the same position to see how shockingly gracious and loving his heart actually is. Because of our sin and because of God's response, because of the cross and the empty tomb, we now know God not only as a good creator, but also as a gracious savior who loves us even though we don't deserve it. This is why it is such a big deal. One reason why it's such a huge deal, how we treat other people as Christians. Non-Christians generally are kind to those who are kind to them, but Jesus says his followers are also to love those who hate them and who mistreat them even to people who try to kill them. And why does he call us to such a radical standard? I mean, that's so different. Our society is so polarized. Even the smallest offenses can be blown up into a big deal. This is so dramatically different than the way our world operates. But one of the reasons is that this is exactly the love that Christ has shown towards rebellious human beings who literally killed him. They literally killed him and he allowed us to kill him because he loves us. And for those of you who are parents, this reality of God's grace towards me, it's one of the most convicting, but also one of the most empowering truths for me when my kids disobey me or when they throw a tantrum. But to, to crystallize this, let me give you a specific example. When I've had a long day and I come home and I play with my kids and enjoy them and then I, I lay them down and I want to spend a little bit of time with my wife and then just go to sleep and my kids get out of bed like I tell them not to, and then they get out of bed again, and then a third time and a fourth time. When that happens, when my kids disobey me, when they have a bad attitude towards me, this is often when I feel like loving them the least. Now, one of my kids who will rename nameless, I think he's the most uh, creative human being in the entire world when it comes to bedtime. It's like there's, there's always a new excuse. Like there's always this brilliant innovation for why he really, really has to get out of bed. I think those are times where I often will fail to love my kids the way that God has called me to. But what I need to constantly remind myself of is that when my children sin, 
when they disobey me, when I feel like loving them the least, that is often the best opportunity to show them the grace of God. That's often the best time to show them the heart of my Savior. And for those of you without, without kids, the same dynamic is true in all of our relationships, whether with friends or roommates and coworkers. And the times we feel like loving people the least are often the very best opportunities to display the heart of Jesus Christ. That's not to say that there's never difficult conversations to have or that we should never discipline our kids, but the spirit behind it is so important. The heart behind it is, is so, so important. Because Jesus, is, because Jesus humbled himself, because of his sacrificial death in our place, he's now highly exalted in his own unique category above every other name, far above, inexpressibly above any other human being. Christ's supreme exaltation, it makes the second aspect of his ascension all the more shocking, which is that Christ endlessly intercedes for us. Christ endlessly intercedes for us, us being believers. This is what we're told in Hebrews 7. Now many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. But because he, Jesus, remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus always lives to intercede for believers. To intercede means that Jesus continues to represent us and pray for us and, and seek our blessing in heaven. And this verse, it assures us that Jesus is still doing that for us today, 2,000 years later, after his ascension. He lives to intercede for us. Did you know that Jesus is praying for you right now? If you're a believer, do you know that he's interceding for you constantly before the Father? You know, the one who has all power and authority, the one who is supremely exalted above all, he continues to serve each and every one of his people every day. He continues to serve us in heaven. Romans 8 tells us that this is one of the reasons that we can be confident that nothing can separate us from God's love. One of the key reasons is because not only has Christ died for us to pay for our sin, he's continuing to intercede for us. To, to apply that in, in our relationship with him before the throne. Because of Christ's ascension, he now endlessly serves us as believers before the throne of God. Now as amazing as that is, it actually keeps getting better. And that's because the third implication is that because of the ascension, Christ can send the Spirit to believers. Christ can send the Holy Spirit to indwell believers. Jesus had finished his teaching to his apostles before the ascension in verse 49 of Luke chapter 24 saying this, and look, I am sending you what my Father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. Many Old Testament passages like Isaiah 32 and Ezekiel 36, Joel 2, and many others, they, pro they prophesy about God placing his spirit within his people and pouring out his, his power into their lives from on high. That promise, it was fulfilled in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit descended upon and indwelled the believers who were waiting in Jerusalem as Jesus commanded. But it didn't just happen then. 
It's continued to happen around the world for the last, the last 2,000 years as people are saved and come to faith in Christ. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 captures this well. It says, In Him, Christ, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of His glory. If we could go back to verse 13, when does Paul say that people receive the Holy Spirit? It's not as a result of our own efforts. It's not when you get baptized. It's not a result of a, a powerful emotional or spiritual experience like speaking in tongues. The different people, they have different experiences when they come to Christ. But when do people receive the Holy Spirit? Paul says it's when people hear the gospel and they believe it. When they hear the gospel message and they truly believe it, they are sealed forever. They are permanently united with the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. God comes and makes his home in them. This indwelling of the Holy Spirit is so profound. Listen to how Jesus describes it to his apostles in John 16. Yet because I've spoken these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. He's been talking to them about how he was going to depart, how he's going to return to the, to the Father but he goes on and he says this, nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It's for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. Have you ever thought about this amazing statement? Jesus is saying, if I don't go to the Father, then the Spirit won't be sent. And he claims... <laughs> He claims it's actually better for his apostles. It's better for us as his followers for him to return to the Father. It, isn't that counterintuitive? How does that make sense? If you could choose between having Jesus here with us physically and not, what would you pick? I mean, doesn't it seem obvious? Like, I want Jesus physically here. That would, of course, that would, of course, be better, wouldn't it? And yet Jesus, he says, it's better for you. It's actually beneficial for us for me to go. How does that make sense? Well, on earth, Jesus was limited by his human nature to one physical location at any given time. So even after the resurrection, that's the case. And so if he stayed on earth, let's say that the center of the movement of the church was Jerusalem, and he just stayed there. Or even if he went around, around the world as the gospel spread, if that's what happened, Jesus, the ability to directly experience his presence would be limited to a very small number of people at any given time. That, that's what would have happened if Jesus would have stayed. But upon returning in victory to heaven, the divine nature of Christ, he can now be present with every single believer through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus said in John 14 that he would not leave us as orphans, but that both he and the Father would come and make their home with his followers. And he said this right after explaining that the Holy Spirit was going to be given to them. It's clear he's saying the Holy Spirit is the way that you're going to, to stay in relationship with me, that my presence will continue with you. And Paul, he concisely sums up the riches of the gospel in Colossians 1.27 when he says, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. If you're a believer, you have Christ. You have access to Christ. And he indwells you through the Holy Spirit. So why was it beneficial for Jesus' disciples that he ascended into heaven? 
Well, the reason is because he went away so he could be closer to us than ever before. He ascended into heaven. He departed so that he could be closer to his followers than ever before. Isn't this exactly what we see in the life of the apostles? Were they more humble and wise and bold and spiritually fruitful before Jesus left or after? Did they love Jesus more when he was with with them physically? Or did they love him more and were they more faithful to him after he left and they received the Holy Spirit? If you've read any of the Gospels in, in the book of Acts, you know it's not even close. That they were dramatically more mature across the board after Jesus left and they received the Holy Spirit. And this makes perfect sense because it is impossible to live the Christian life apart from the Holy Spirit. You you actually are not a Christian until you receive the Spirit. On top of that, Christianity, following Christ, even once you're a Christian, it's, it's not ultimately about behavior modification or religious rituals. Christianity is about being changed from the inside out. It's about learning to genuinely love God and genuinely love other people by the power that he gives us. If you're a believer, this should be exciting because what it means is that the very presence and power of Christ, they're available to you now through the indwelling Holy Spirit. That the resources of God, the power of God that we need, we have access to it by the Holy Spirit. When we're saved, the Holy Spirit gives believers a new desire to know and to follow God that we didn't have before. God's not just a a concept out there, a deity out there. He's not just a religious obligation. But if you're a Christian, Christ has become our greatest hope. He becomes the greatest source of satisfaction. And the Holy Spirit, he doesn't just give us new desires. He supplies us with the power we need to live out those desires as well. This is not a a perfect analogy, but a way to think through this is that often as Christians, we feel overwhelmed. You know, it's difficult to try and and follow Christ. There's a lot of commands that God gives. He speaks into and wants authority over every area of our lives. And I think for some people, the Christian life feels like a parent, you know, has a big family and a job where no matter how hard they work, they never have enough money to pay the bills. Never have enough And so no matter how hard I work, it seems like I just can't meet the responsibilities that are are in front of me. The the real needs that I'm supposed to meet, I I don't feel like I, I I don't have what is necessary to provide or to live those out. Now, imagine if you change that equation because that same individual who just never has enough money can never kind of meet the needs of those around them who are looking to them, imagine that that person is adopted by Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or one of the richest, one of the richest men in the world. And this, this individual who adopts and says, you know what, now what's mine is yours. You, I'm giving you access to my bank account. My staff, if you need anything, you can, call, you can tap into them directly. All of a sudden, everything changes. The, the responsibilities don't change. The needs in front of them don't change. But there's different resources to meet them. Now, this is not to say that that our effort isn't involved in the Christian life, but what this is to say is that the Christian life, it can't be lived independently of God. We're dependent on him for the power to live the way that he's called us to. So often as believers, we think Jesus saves me, he forgives me, and now the Christian life, it's on me. I've got to get my act together. 
I've got to, I've got to figure things out. And what we don't realize is just like we're dependent on Christ to save us, we're also dependent on him to continue to sanctify us and change us. To help see just how this, this is so broad and how it gets into every area of our, our lives, I want to look at quickly six ways the Holy Spirit works in us. Now, we're not going to get into each one in the same detail. And again, this is not a, nearly a comprehensive list. But the first one to mention is that Christ gives a spiritual insight to God's word. Christ gives a spiritual insight to God's word. Paul clearly says this in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. He says, Now we, believers, have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. The context is, is how non-Christians, they reject what the apostles teach. He says, Christians, though, Christians have the spirit to understand what the apostles teach, which is what we have now in Scripture. Did you know that you need the Holy Spirit's help to rightly understand God's word and be transformed by it? This is a humbling thought. We actually need God's help to understand his word, and we definitely need God's power to change us through it. And when you read God's word, do you regularly pray before you do, and even while you're reading, and ask God earnestly to teach you, to ask him to change you through it, and speak to you through that time? There's such a, a big difference between sitting down and reading the Bible as a religious chore, and sitting down and, and opening up God's word and asking God to speak to you through it, asking him to deal with you and expose your sin and change you. There's such a big difference. And this is especially true when you recall what we learned last week, that the whole Bible is written about Christ. This is why Jesus said in John 16, 14, that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will glorify me because he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. The context of this statement is how he's promising his apostles that he's going to lead them into all truth. And this is, this is about how he's going to lead them to write the New Testament, the inspired scriptures for us. But this, this promise of the, directing them, the Holy Spirit leading them into all truth, that principle holds true for us as believers as well. That's the spirit that leads us into understanding the truth of God's word and Jesus, and Jesus says that the Holy Spirit, one of his main roles as this is happening, just as the whole Old Testament, we looked last week, it all points to Jesus. Jesus is saying here, as the New Testament is going to get written, he's saying, it's written to glorify me. The New Testament ultimately points to me as well. And so one of the major roles of the, of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Christ, to show us how awesome Jesus Christ truly is. Since Jesus is the main character of the entire Bible, it doesn't matter if we're reading in Luke or Leviticus, the Holy Spirit is going to want to help you to see how glorious Christ is as we better understand his word. He, he wants us to understand his saving work and how we need it not just to convert us, but how we need it to empower our everyday lives as well. And this is one of the reasons that as a pastor, one of my biggest hopes for all of you is that you would have a consistent daily time studying God's word. No matter, no matter how much you come to church, no matter if you come to church every single week and hear a message preached, you're not going to become a, a mature man or woman of God unless you become a man or woman of God's word. You, you can listen to me preach every week, and that, that will not mature you the way God desires. 
And that's true not just of me, but even the best preachers in the world. God wants you to learn to connect with him and meet with him in his word yourself. If you're like me, even though you know that you should be impressed with Jesus, even though you know reading God's word, I, that, I should do that. I, I should try and spend more time with him. You probably know that. There's often times where you don't feel like it. There's often times where you're not impressed by Christ. You know, you, know you, should, you should worship him, but often our hearts are excited about other things or distracted by other things, even sinful things at times. And when you notice that, what God wants us to do is not to, to fake it. He doesn't, he doesn't want us to try and fake it and manufacture emotions for Christ. What he wants us to do is repent, to just acknowledge there's a lot that's messed up in my soul still if I don't value Christ. And so we should repent, and then we should ask God to help glorify Christ. Ask the Holy Spirit, God, help me to see Jesus and how he's worthy of my affections. That's one of the Holy Spirit's primary roles, to take these concepts and ideas that we teach, teach about and make them real to you personally. The Holy Spirit, Paul says, he takes, takes the things of God to help us understand what we've, we've been freely given. The Holy Spirit helps us to see the greatness of the triune God through the person of Jesus Christ. And just to give you a, an example of this from my, my own life, I think a couple of weeks ago now, I, I was reading, I sat down, and, and I felt really exhausted spiritually. I felt pretty discouraged about a, a, number, of, a number of things in ministry. And I sat down, I was planning on reading, kind of what was you know, just the next thing in my reading plan. And as I did, I was so distracted. And you've probably been there, your mind's kind of in all these different places. And I remember just stopping and saying, God, I, I need to connect with you. I need to hear from you this morning. And instead of just continuing what I was planning on, Psalm 90 came to mind. And so I, I flipped to Psalm 90. I read Psalm 90, and I spent some time thinking about where it says that, that um, the Psalm in, in verse, or chapter 90, verse 14, it says, Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. Then we may rejoice and be glad all the days of our life. And I, just, I spent some time there because I, I was convicted I haven't been satisfied in God. I haven't been satisfied. Been, and the reason, which is often what happens to me, is I've been busy with all of my other distractions, all my other responsibilities. But the, the, the glory of the Christian life is not ultimately the new things that we get to do as Christians. The glory is that we get to experience God through them. We get to walk with God through them. And so it was so good for my soul, just coming out of that, that time, just with a fresh perspective, God, I, I want to be satisfied in you and then thinking through, well, how can God love us with unfailing love? Well, it's ultimately because of Christ. It's ultimately because he's already dealt with our sin. That's how he can be in a, an eternal covenant with us, and we can experience God's grace. And so just meditating on that, it, it was total, total change in my soul. And I think if I would have just kept reading without slowing down and recognizing, I need you, God, to minister to me, I think I would have, I think I would have missed that. And so I would encourage you this, this week as you read God's word and even just hopefully for the rest of your life as you read, pray and recognize, God, I want you to speak to me. I want you to, to do whatever you want to do in my life. I think if you pray that genuinely, that's a prayer that God would love to answer. So the first thing the Holy Spirit does is he gives a spiritual insight into God's word. I'm going to move more quickly through the rest of these. 
One of the other major things the Holy Spirit does is he gives us new power over sin in our lives. Romans 8, 13 says that it's by the Spirit that you put to death the deeds of the body. And so it's the Holy Spirit that, that gives us power over the areas of sin that we consistently struggle with as we learn to rely on, on his power, not just our own. That's the only way that we'll experience more consistent victory in those areas. Closely connected to this is the fact that the Holy Spirit gives us practical direction. The very next verse in Romans 8, Paul says, for all those who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons. God is our shepherd, and he primarily leads his people through his word. God doesn't lead us through our feelings. He doesn't lead us by our intuitions. The way God leads us is as we study his word, as we understand his word, the Holy Spirit takes those truths and those commands and those principles and specifically applies them into our personal lives, into our in individual circumstances. And so it's the Holy Spirit that, that gives us direction as we spend time in his word, as we understand his word. Fourth, the Holy Spirit also gives us power to serve God. I love what it says in Romans 7, verse 6. It says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Isn't that awesome? There's a new way to serve God. It's not out of duty. It's not out of the sense of obligation, because I hope, I, hope I, I hope God will love me. I, I want to go to heaven. It's like, God could never love you any more than he does now. Serving God can't do anything to get you into heaven. We serve God out of a response. As Christians, he wants us to serve out of a response to his love, out of a desire to grow closer to him. There's a new way of serving God that the Holy Spirit empowers us to have and experience. Fifth, the Holy Spirit produces godly character in us. Galatians 5 talks about this with the fruit of the Spirit. And this is so helpful because it shows that we can't manufacture the love and the joy, the inner change that God desires for us. We, we don't just try harder to be loving. We don't just try harder to have joy. But what God calls us to do is to obey him in faith, to obey what he's asked us to do in faith, depending on him. And as we do that, that's what he uses to change our inner world. Love is, is the fruit of the Spirit's work in us. It's what he produces as we submit to him. And then finally, the Holy Spirit empowers us for gospel ministry. This is the main thing that Jesus emphasized in both Luke and Acts when describing the power that the Holy Spirit was going to give them as apostles. In Acts 1.8, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He said, I'm giving you my spirit and it's gonna give you power to witness, power to be my representatives in this world. I think that one of the reasons we often experience such little of the power the Holy Spirit wants to pour out into our lives is because we regularly fail to connect that, that he wants to give us his power in parenting and at our jobs, in our career, in our friendships and, and the neighborhoods that we live to witness for him. And he wants to help me show his heart to my kids when they disobey and get out of bed another time, <laughs> a, fifth, a fifth time. He wants, he wants to help us to, to, to love other believers, invest in young believers and help them to grow. He wants to help us step out in faith and initiate gospel conversations with a neighbor. The power of the Holy Spirit is not given so that you can bench press 100 extra pounds. 
It's not given so that you can just perform miracles at, at your prerogative. The Holy Spirit has been given to us to give us power to live the way that Jesus has commanded, to live out the, the Christian life in his strength. And so brothers and sisters, we have an inexhaustible supply of power and joy available to us through the Holy Spirit. And God wants us to depend on that more and more, to learn, to tap into that more and more the longer we follow Christ. He ascended into heaven so that, we could, so that he could be closer to us than ever before and to pour out his blessing into our lives through his spirit. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that you descended. Thank you that you took on human flesh. I thank you for the, the book of, of Luke that we've gotten to study through together and, and all the reasons, God, all the, the resources it gives us in terms of reasons to praise you and to worship you. But God, above all, help us, Lord, to worship you because of the cross and because of the resurrection and because of your ascension. We thank you, Jesus, that we don't have to fear the eternal wrath that we deserve. We don't have to fear hell, but instead we can look forward to being with you forever and we can enjoy the blessings of relationship with you now. God, teach us, teach me, God, how to, to walk more consistently with your spirit, how to rely on, on your power, Lord, instead of operating independently. God, we thank you that you want to do that. We thank you that you want your joy to be produced in us as we walk with you. And so I pray as a, as a church that we would have a higher and higher view of you, Lord Jesus, and that we'd be more and more dependent on you for the resources that we need to obey you. And we pray this all in your great name. Amen.